Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, you have bound the strong man and spoiled all that was in his house, and you have given us power over the enemy. You have delivered the serpent, that murderer, bound to us as a sparrow to children. You have cast him down like lightning from heaven to earth, from honor to dishonor. For all things fear you and tremble before the face of your power. You look upon the earth and it trembles. You touch the mountains and they smoke. You threaten the sea and it dries up. And you make all rivers like the desert. The clouds are the dust of your feet. And you walk upon the sea as if it were dry ground. You are the only begotten God, the Son of the great father, rebuke all wicked spirits and deliver the works of your hands from the power of the adverse spirit. For your truth remains forever. We praise you and angels sing hymns to you and to you is due glory and honor and worship by you to the father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Well, good evening, church. Happy Good Friday. You're supposed to say it back. We had two services tonight. We're 0 for 2. Okay? Good Friday. It's a happy day. It's a good day for, for us to come together as a church. Uh, 11 years ago, I was 23 years old, and I was a pretty new Christian. And I was moving into a new stage of life after college where I was supposed to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life, and I had no idea what I was supposed to do with my life, and I had no idea how I was supposed to live in this world as a Christian, and I had never been a part of a church before in my life. And my wife, Jenna, who is the main vessel through whom God moved in my salvation, brought me to this church. And I walked through the doors of this church and under the leadership of Joel Kovacs, and with many people that are in this room today, for the first time in my life, I had a church. And so before I say anything tonight, I just want you to know that I am honored and blessed to be here on Good Friday with my church. What a beautiful thing to be able to say. And so I'm not going to tell my whole story tonight, because tonight is not about me. But I will tell you that I stand before you today as a Christian because of the power of God. You know, you can feel that power in the room tonight. It's real. And that power of God reached into my soul and brought me to life. He took me from what I was to a son of God. That's the power of God. And so tonight on Good Friday, I want to talk about that power. And I want to direct our attention to the cross. And I want to talk about how the cross, what Joel talked about earlier, somehow reveals the power of God. And specifically, what I want to talk about tonight and what I want you to focus on is that the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in that reality... The power of God has defeated hell, the devil, and death. Go with that? That was better. The first service was like, oh. And I was like, well, I don't actually have another message. So you have have to be okay with it. The message that we're going to get to tonight is triumphant and victorious. But like anything, in order to see the light for what it is, you have to look into the darkness. If we want to see how we have been freed from the power of the devil, we have to look at the devil. 
If we want to see how we have been freed from the power of death, we have to stare into the face of death. And these are not easy things for us to gaze upon. You know, death specifically is a strange thing for us. We all know that we die. And as you get older, you can feel yourself dying. You know, my knee hurts. There's no reason for my knee to hurt. Not like playing basketball at this point in my life, but I'm like decaying. I'm dying. And we see people die. People that we love die. We mourn the loss of loved ones. There's people in this room tonight who at this very moment are mourning the loss of somebody that they love. We know death, we see it, we can feel it around us, but by and large, we have no idea what we're supposed to do with it. And so usually we try to ignore it. We try to take ourselves as far away from it as we can. We try not to think about it. But even when it's not on our doorstep, in our most sober moments of reflection, we know that it's real. And we can feel its reality and it haunts us and it baffles us because the implications of death are too much. That's why we tell ourselves all these stories. You know, we spend our lives doing things, expending ourselves towards the building of something, the creating of something that we think is worth it towards people that we love. And we have to convince ourselves that it's worth it. But there's an elephant in the room. If death is it, if we die and then that's it, then it is true that none of that really matters. It's all going to pass away. And so all that you do and all that you build and all that you love is going to go into the grave. And the implications of that are too much for us. You don't know what to do with it. You know, one of the most brilliant novelists of all time, Leo Tolstoy, talked about a time in his life when he was in his 50s. It almost drove him to suicide, this question of death. He said this, my question is the same question that lies in the soul of every man, from the wisest elder to the foolish child. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? It can also be expressed thus, he says, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there anything that death cannot take? And so you see why we avoid it. You see why we try to ignore it for as long as we can. Death makes us deeply insecure about everything. The reality of death is a deep wound that we walk around with, and it hovers above us, and it waits for us, and it's there. But the one thing that I can tell you is that the Bible speaks to the deepest longings of our souls, the deepest questions, the deepest wounds and insecurities, that is where the biblical truth tends to live. And that is where the truth of the gospel does its most miraculous healing. And death is a deep wound and it's a deep insecurity. And so it's no surprise that death is absolutely central to the story of the Bible. I mean, tonight we're gathered together to celebrate and to participate in a death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so what does the Bible say about death? Where does it direct us when we think about death? Why are we here tonight celebrating a death? And why is it that this night where we talk about death turns into a triumphant Sunday in which we stand together and we say that the power of God has overcome it all? You could say, and I think you would be right, 
that the main storyline of the Bible is a story of life and death. Sometimes we don't see it like this, but the central miracle of the Bible is life. And the central tragedy of the Bible is death. God brings forth miraculously. He creates. He breathes forth the life that we have. We live in this existence. It's all that we know. And so we take it as a brute fact, like it just is. But there's no reason to presuppose life at all. Life itself is a miracle of love. And we have to ground our understanding of life in that. You know, this is a very gracious and kind church community. And so when I stand up and I talk and I speak and I teach and I preach, I don't usually get super like sharp critiques because if you listen to somebody for long enough, they have certain idiosyncrasies that, you know, you could, you can probably make fun of, but it has been told to me that every time I stand up and teach and preach, I teach from Genesis chapter one. People have told me that before. And so what I want to show you all tonight on Good Friday is that God is doing a new work in me. And so I will not teach from Genesis chapter 1 tonight, okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is our origin. This is where we come from. This is what we are, created and sustained by God, breathed to life, by love, walking, talking, miracles of life. We don't always see it that way, but that doesn't mean that it isn't true. And in your walk with God, you are more than welcome to ask pointed questions about your existence to him. You can ask those tough questions. Why is life like this? Why would you do this? Why does X, Y, and Z happen? God can handle your questions. You know, read the Psalms. David cries out a lot. You can ask those questions, but we do have to remember that those questions come from the foundation that life itself is inexplicable, that life in and of itself is a gift. It's not necessary. It's pure grace all the way down. We are simply the dust of the ground, breathed to life by the miraculous love and power of God. And those humans lovingly breathed to life were told that they should have dominion over the garden. They're supposed to work it and keep it and guard it. And so not only has life been given to them like this, but so too has all of the provision and all of the abundance. God says you may eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. He says you can have this life. You may live and exist in my love. You can have it all. But then he says, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our initial reaction in our culture is to say, well, why can't we do that? But why can't we have that? Well, he tells us. He says, you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. God does not want them to eat from the tree because he loves them. And if they eat from that tree, it will kill them. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, if you eat from this tree, the one rule I gave you, testing your obedience. And if you break that rule, I am going to be very angry with you and my wrath will come down upon you and I will kill you. He says, don't eat from that tree. It's bad for you. If you do, it will kill you. And I love you. I know you. I know who you are. I know what you need. I know what will hurt you. And that tree will kill you. 
Don't eat from it. You know, parents in the room, you give a rule to your children, and, and all of you probably remember when you were children, depending on the kind of neighborhood and house you grew up in, that there's a very, uh, one of the first rules we remember, there's a very intense demarcation between the driveway and the street. And you are not to cross that line. You're not supposed to go in the street. And so if you ever watch kids playing in the driveway, if the ball goes in the street, you see them like looking up at the windows and seeing if anybody's watching them, right? And of course, the reason, parents, that you give that rule to your children is because you want them to know that you're the boss, right? And so you, you, you stand at the window and you wait for them to go into the, to the street so that you can come out there and pour your punishment upon them for breaking the rule. Is that why you give them the rule? That would be unhinged. Of course not. Give them that rule because if they run out into the street and there's a car coming, they might get hit by a car, they might die. And you love them, you made them, you don't want them to die. And so you give them that rule that they may live and flourish. It's always like this when we turn away from God. It's always like this when we go against him. You know, we don't always like his commands. We don't always understand them. The rules that he gives us. To, to the guardrails of a life of flourishing, sometimes it feels arbitrary to us. And especially in what we value in this culture, it feels oppressive, like he's taking choice away from me. But the, the, the commands that God gives are, are given out of love. And we are to trust him because he made us, and we are to trust him because he loves us, and we are to trust him because he is good. And when we do, and when we go with him, we live. And when we don't, we die. We go from life to death. Now, there's a serpent in the garden. And the Bible goes on to identify this serpent as Satan. And this serpent tempts the man and the woman, and he lies to them and deceives them. And they eat from the tree that God tells them not to eat from. And the result of them eating from this tree is not a surprise. This is not like God has you know, pulled the rug out from under them like he's pulling a fast one or something. He told them what would happen if they eat from the tree. He said, you will certainly die. They eat from the tree. And it says, by the sweat of your nose, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. This is a poetic way of saying you will die now. And you see the tragedy, right? God made them out of dust and miraculously breathed them to life. But now, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And it makes sense. You have to remember that God is life. You know, he is not another being. He is being. And all being that we know is contingent upon him. All existence, all life lives in that life. And so what happens if you turn away from the God who is life? What happens when you move away? from the God who is life. What do you turn towards? What do you move towards? Death. It's not even so much a punishment as much as it is an inevitability. It's like a logical necessity. And in the garden, they eat the fruit. They turn away from God. And so they turn towards death from the dust you were taken back into the dust you will return. And from this point forward in the biblical story, death is in the world. And it hovers over our lives and it haunts our souls. We have gone from life to death. And in the garden, God curses that serpent. And he says to him, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. 
You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, this is not a story about how snakes used to have legs. This is a story about death. You were created out of the dirt, right? And Satan is responsible for death coming into the world. The humans are complicit for, for, for their actions, of course. But Satan has actively and powerfully brought death into the world. And so from this point forward, God tells Satan that he is the king of the realm of the dead. He is the king of death. Cast down into the dirt. You're taken from the dirt to life. You go back into the dirt when you die. Who's there? Who's slithering around in that dirt and dust? Who's down there? Whose realm is that? Whose kingdom is that? It's the serpent. It's Satan's crawling on his belly, eating the dust, devouring the dead. And so you might think that it's strange that God would give Satan a kingdom, like maybe it's some kind of reward. It's not a reward. The kingdom that Satan now rules over is a kingdom of ash and dust, a kingdom of nothingness. He used to be an angel in the heavenly realms. He was in the throne room of God, and now he is in a kingdom of nothingness, a kingdom of dust and ashes, a realm of pure privation. As an aside, this is why the schemes and the promises of the devil are always lies. It's not true because it's not real. He doesn't have anything to give you. All he has is death and dust and ashes, and so he promises you the world, but he can't give you the world because it's not his. It doesn't belong to him. All he has is dust and ash and nothing because that's where he reigns. You know, there's a big lie in our culture that, that, you know, he can give you a fun and exhilarating life. You know, Billy Joel, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. It's not true. He can't give that to you because he doesn't have it. All he can do is trick you and deceive you into following him and then take your soul and give you nothing because he has nothing truly to give you. All he has is nothingness, and so he tricks us following him into that oblivion, into that abyss, into death. But we do follow him in our sin. And so death is real now. And the Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death, and we all sin. So death is now our destiny. There is no escape. From dust we came, back into the dust we shall return. And since we are destined for death, so is everything that we touch. Everything that we build and everything that we love and everything that we think is valuable is destined for death as well. And the only possible hope we might have is if we are somehow miraculously saved and freed from the finality, from the sting of death. Without salvation, we and all that we make will go from dust to dust. And we're haunted by this. And we should be. We must be delivered. We must be saved or we have no real hope. Now, here's the good news. This is the good news that we're supposed to preach. God wants to save you. I want you to hear that tonight. God wants to save you. Sometimes we tell the story of the gospel, and it kind of feels like God's tolerating us. Like he merely puts up with us because of some kind of like divine equation of justice or something. That is not true. God does not merely tolerate you. God wants you deeply. He wants you badly. He wants to have you. He wants to save you. Why were you created in the first place? 
Why did God create any of us? Because he wants us. He desires us. He longs for us. He wants to have us. Then we turned away from him. And now we come to Good Friday and it's like, well, now salvation is right at your door. Why is salvation at your door? For the same reason he created you in the first place, because he wants you and he desires you and he longs to have you. And he refuses to let you go. He wants to save you. If you want to know how God feels about you and you want to get a little uncomfortable in the process, go read the Song of Songs. It's in the middle of the Bible. It's considered wisdom literature. But if we're honest, it is erotic love poetry. And usually we think of it, the husband and the wife longing for each other. And we usually think of it as a healthy relationship of a husband and a wife. And that is true, but that's just an image. The church fathers always interpreted the Song of Songs as Christ the bridegroom, longing for the church, us, his bride. And so all that you read in there, the yearning, the longing of the husband for the wife is Christ's longing and desiring love of us. How does God feel about you? That's how he feels about you. He wants you. He desires you. longs for you. And so here we are. We have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And death casts a shadow over all that we are and all that we do and all that we love and all that we build. And we cannot save ourselves. But God wants to save us. And the miracle of the Christian life is that we worship a God who raises the dead and brings into existence things that we're not. And so not only does he want to save us, he can save us. And not only can he save us, but he does save us. God becomes flesh and blood in the person of Jesus, the the eternal son of the father, born of the Virgin Mary. He walks around like you and me in all ways but sin. He shows what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes to fruition. He shows what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. What's it look like? Well, the sick are healed. The lepers are cleansed. The storms are calmed. The demons are cast out. And the dead are raised. Just like God in the garden was rejected by those that he loved and created and longs for, God in the flesh is rejected by those he created, loves, and longs for, and came to save. And he's sent to the cross. They kill him. And he undergoes a brutal and torturous death called crucifixion. And so tonight, we're not going to get into the gory details of what it means to be crucified. We have done that before. But what I will tell you is that the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. It's the root of the word, excruciating, crucifixion. And so he's subjected to this. This is what they do to him. He suffers this. And all of the sin that is within you that you inflict upon the world and all of the sin that's outside of you that's inflicted upon you and the powers of sin and the animated force of evil that pulls you away from God and drags you down into the dust and brings death into the world, the power of Satan and his host, all of that comes to a crescendo and overwhelms and overcomes God on the cross and he suffers the consequence of sin. He dies. He pays the wages of sin which is death. And this is what I want us to understand tonight. According to 1 Peter and according to the church fathers, because he dies, he goes where the dead go. He goes back into the dirt. He goes down into the dust. He descends into the realm of the dead. He goes down into the ashes where Satan rules and reigns, the God of life, 
goes into the kingdom of death. There's a parable that he tells before he dies. It's called the parable of the lost sheep. It's a parable about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. One of them goes missing. And so he leaves the 99 and goes wherever he must go to find his missing sheep. We are the lost sheep. And Christ is the good shepherd. Where are we? Well, because we sin, we're destined for death. So where does the good shepherd go to find us? Goes into the death. He goes into the realm of Satan. He goes right there where we are, trapped and imprisoned, because he wants us. And that's where we are. So he goes there. You see, you and I, death has a claim on us because of sin. But Jesus is sinless. And so not only is he the God of life in the flesh, he is also sinless in the flesh. And so death has no claim on him. And death has no power over him. And so he descends all the way down into the deepest brokenness of our soul, into the deepest depths of sin and evil, all the way down into death. But because they lay no claim on him and have no authority over him, he goes into that realm all the way there, not as a victim, not as one who is destined for there because of sin. He goes there as a victor. He goes there as a conqueror. He goes into death, the house of Satan, as a plunderer. And when Satan comes face to face with the God of life, he's done. And Christ binds the strong man in his own house. And in his resurrection, he conquers death and the powers of death. And the good news of Easter weekend is that he invites you into that. The cross is not just a moment where the slate gets wiped clean and some kind of cosmic accounting of sin happens. It's a moment where the powers of evil and sin and death are overcome, the powers that you and I experience on a daily basis, and we are invited to follow Christ into that and come out the other side victorious. Conquerors. He says, come and follow me into that. Come and be free from this like I am. And so the verse that we opened with, Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The final enemy, the last one, has been defeated in Christ and we are invited to come into that on Easter weekend, Melito of Sardis, who is one of the church fathers, says this, the Lord, when he had clothed himself with man, arose from the dead and uttered this cry, I am the one that destroyed death and triumphed over the devil and trod down Hades and bound the strong one. I carried man off to the heights of heaven. I am the one, says Christ. So come then, all you families of men who are compounded with sins and receive forgiveness of sins, for I am your forgiveness I am the Passover of salvation. I am the lamb slain for you. I am your ransom. I am your life. I am your light. I am your salvation. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I will raise you up with my right hand. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. And there I will show you the father from ages past. This is the promise. You know, when we talk about Jesus's ministry, rightly so, we typically talk about it as a ministry of peace and a ministry of humility and a ministry of meekness. And in so many ways it was, in this way it was not. 
when it comes to him versus hell, the devil, and death, the ministry of Jesus Christ that culminated in the crucifixion and resurrection is a declaration of war. And Satan is aggressively driven out. The ruler of the realm of death is driven out so that Christ may have us even in death. And so you have to see what this means. If death has been conquered, then what else is there? What keeps us from him? What keeps us from meaning and purpose in our life? What keeps us from life of the age, eternal life? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have to understand this. We as the church have to walk around with this kind of confidence. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Why? Well, because sin and evil and the devil and hell only ever really had one thing over us, death. Their power is that our sin leads us to their kingdom, that our sin leads us to them, leads us to death. And Christ on the cross goes all the way into that and destroys it in the resurrection. And so Paul is correct. And what he says, because of that, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The devil's desire was to wrestle from God a kingdom of his own and to place locks and bars over it and to imprison God's images inside. But like Christ told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And in the crucifixion and in the resurrection, Christ has triumphed over death and he has triumphed over Satan and he has shattered their power and we are free. We are now free. After his descent into death, it means that even death is filled with the presence of Christ. He's been there. His eternal light has shone in there. And so even death is now filled with Christ. That presence is salvation for all those who believe and give themselves to him. Now, I have to say that I also believe that presence is torturous and fatal to those who oppose him, especially the devil and the demons. If you hate God and you want nothing to do with him, I would assume his eternal presence will be unbearable. But because of Good Friday, death is not a place of abandonment. It is not oblivion. It is a place where Christ is present in his love, just like he is in paradise. And so there's nowhere left that you can hide. There's nowhere that we can go that he is not. Even in death, the love of God reigns. Even in death, the love of God will consume us because death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he has put everything under his feet. And so he has put death under his feet as well. And so there's nothing left for us to fear. You know, that thing that we don't want to look at, that we don't want to talk about, that we want to keep away from us because we don't know what to do with it, that which hangs over our head and taints even the most beautiful things in this life and causes us existential dread, even that has been defeated in Christ. And so we are free and there's nothing left to fear. John Chrysostom says this, let no one fear death for the Savior's death has freed us. By enduring it, he quenched it 
He who descended into Hades has despoiled Hades. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. As Isaiah proclaimed in prophecy, death was embittered when it met you below. Embittered for it was destroyed. Embittered for it was mocked. Embittered for it was slain. Embittered for it was wiped out. Embittered for it was bound to receive the body and came face to face with God. It received earth and met heaven. It received what it saw and fell through what it did not see. So death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Christ has risen and you are abolished. Christ has risen and the demons have fallen. Christ has risen and the angels rejoice. Christ has risen and life has found freedom. Christ has risen and there is not a single corpse left in the grave. Since Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the way to resurrection has been opened up for all flesh and salvation is available to every human being and the gates of paradise have been opened for all who wish to enter through them. And what this means, and what we're going to talk about a lot more on Sunday, is that if you are in Christ, you will be raised like Christ. Not only will you be raised in Christ, so will anything that you do in this life that's connected to him. You understand that? If it's connected to Christ, it will follow him. It will go into death like you, and it will come out in resurrection like you, which means that there's nothing in your life as a Christian that is in vain. There is nothing small. There is nothing insignificant. If it's connected to him, it's eternal. It lives forever. It goes into the grave with him like us in baptism, and it comes out into eternal life like us in baptism. If it's connected to him, it follows him. The time that you spend with your children the godly virtue that you instill in them, the community that you enjoy, the images of God you help, the relationships you foster and cultivate with other people and with animals and with the creation that God loves, the small good deeds that you do, the daily faithful steps in the name of God, all of this somehow will be raised to new life. None of this will die forever beautiful thing. If it's connected to him, it will follow him through death and into new life. And so you may be in this room tonight and you may feel darkness in your life and you may have some kind of sin or past, something that happened to you that cripples you with shame. And you may feel the oppression of evil forces upon you. And those things are real and all of those things hurt. But those things do not get the last word if what I'm talking about is true. If death and Satan are no match for Christ, then neither are those things that torment us in this life. If death does not get the last word, then neither do our trials and neither does our pain and neither does our shame. If he has conquered death, then he has conquered those things too. The cross shows us that the power of God has entered into all of it and has conquered it. And he stands before you today, just like every other day, and he beckons you to follow him into this new life. The gates are open and he wants you to step through and he wants you to have this. And so as the church you know, we are still a moment of redemptive history, right? We are redeeming the world through Christ in us. 
And so as the church, we stand in this trouble. We stand in this in-between. We feel the sin and we feel the death and we feel the pain that it causes. We have gone from life to death, but that is not the last word because of the cross and the resurrection. And so we stand in those things with confidence in God because the God of life has taken on the flesh and blood that we suffer in right now. And he's gone all the way down into the depths of your soul, the darkest parts that you won't even tell him about, that you won't even bring to him in prayer. He's gone there. Not only does he know it, he's, he's worn it. He's gone all the way down and he has conquered those things too. The cross shows us that the power of God has conquered it all. He's conquered death. There's nothing left standing in your way. As the Song of Songs says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am his and he is mine and all that he has is mine and he has conquered death. And so if I am a son, if I am bound to him in faith, then I step into that too. And we go from death to life. Now you can't reject this. You know, I think, that, I think that you can. But if you do, you are rejecting life and you fall into the power of death. But you can also give yourselves to him. And if you do, you embrace his life, which means even when you die, you will be raised to new life with him. And so with the apostle Paul, we say, where, O oh, death is your power. Where, O oh, death is your sting. Thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, not a metaphorical victory, real victory. His victory, that's the power of God. We have gone from life to death, but he has taken us from death back into life. And so we walk and we live with that power. There is nothing that evil and Satan and sin can take from us that matters because we have given ourselves to him and he has already defeated it. And it also means that there's nothing in your life that he can't handle. There's nothing that you've ever done. There's nothing that you want. There's no sin that is besetting you that you wish you could get rid of, but it's so hard to get rid of it. There's nothing that he can't take in his power that overcame death and transfigure that into glory. If he has defeated death, there's nothing that he can't handle. And we as the church, we stand on that power or we stand on nothing at all. And so the invitation this Good Friday is the same invitation that it always is. Come and drink from these waters. Come and have this hope. Come and have this salvation. Come and have this resurrection. Come and have this power. Come and have this life. Come from death and step into life. Tomorrow and Sunday, we celebrate unabashedly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tonight, we celebrate his death because in order to raise us to life, he had to go where we're going and he has and he's conquered it. And so we now have hope. The crucifixion is the death whereby all death is defeated. And with the saints in heaven, we rejoice in the power of God. Now, what we do as a church to celebrate Christ on the cross 
is a sacrament that's been handed down through church tradition called the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. And so we're going to take this together. Um, the Eucharist means a lot of things. If you, if you read the Old Testament uh, and you read the Levitical laws very closely, which I know all of you are doing in your devotionals in the morning, you will notice that the most detailed instructions are given on what you do with the blood of the sacrificed animal. Where do you put it? And what you see over and over again is you take that blood and you sprinkle it or you smear it or you wipe it on the most holy places in the temple because that is the ground that God claims. And so it's cleaned with his blood because that is his, right? The same thing is true in the, the Passover, right? You paint your doorframe with blood that marks you as a person of God. The blood of the lamb marks you as one of God. And so tonight we take the flesh of Jesus and his blood that he spilled and we mark ourselves with it because we are now the holy space that the presence of God dwells within. We are his. And so we take the blood and we take the, the flesh and we don't just look at it and we don't just talk about it and conceptualize about it. We eat it and we let it mark us because we are the vessels. We are the temples of God now because of his death and resurrection and ascension. He sends the spirit upon the church and we are now where he dwells. And so the Lord's Supper, amongst other things, is a ceremony where we claim that by marking ourselves with his flesh and blood because we are his and he is ours. And so tonight... We take the truth of the crucifixion and we make it real and we make it tangible and tactile. We put it in our hands and in our mouth and we consume it because that is who we now are. We are in Christ and that's why we go through death into new life. And so the way that we're going to do this tonight, because we have tables set up and it gets wild if everybody tries to go at once, right, is we're going to have ushers dismiss you uh, by section and they're going to tell you where to go. And while you're waiting to be dismissed, I want you to pray. And I want you to think. And I want you to think about the place in your life that you haven't trusted God yet. What is that place you're afraid to show him? What's that place that there's too much shame? There's too much pain. You don't want to break that open for him. Because my promise to you is that if he has conquered death, he can conquer that. He can heal that. He can come into that and do something transfigurative. He can take that and change it. Open yourself to him tonight. Open yourself to the blood of Christ that can mark you and heal you and change you and transform you. When you come up, get the, the wine and the bread and then take it, go back to your seat and, and pray and then take communion.